Yeah, I'm just getting home from the store here, and I thought I'd do a grocery unpacking episode because we do these. Night school has to get a grocery store unpacking episode in now and again. Been doing a lot of writing. If you're interested at all, check out mafia.substack.com. It's this. It's a newsletter service, but it's I'm using it more as a blog. Uh, a lot of independent journalists are using Substack. You can you can eventually monetize it if you want, but I mean this the subject that I'm covering is so niche. I'm not you know obviously well known at all, so I'm just using it because it's it's kind of an interesting format, and I, I put up some of my research, some of my writing, and it's it's very niche. It's very I mean it, it, I would say it requires at the very least an intermediary understanding of what the mafia is it's it go, it, i mean it's it's very dense very detailed and very deep and to somebody who's just seen goodfellas and not that there's anything wrong with that i mean i i don't say this from a point of like elitism or anything it's just that mafia history mafia historians have made major discoveries about the history of the organization in the last even in the last 10 years, but definitely the last 20. And I've been researching this for about solidly since I'd say 2004. Since I was around 18 is when I just dove into it. And at that time, I didn't know shit. But the deeper you go, the deeper it goes. And so I I just warn you that it's probably not for anybody who listens to this show. But it's a passion of mine and it feels good to finally be putting stuff out there. So yeah, mafia.substack.com. And uh, if you do enjoy it, that's great. If you do enjoy it, but it's also insane. I mean, just the writing process. There's about three articles up right now, and they're they're based on. I mean, I, I they were partially written for a long time, and I basically just kind of synthesized them and edited them and put them together into a more cohesive. Uh, I don't want to call it a story because it's really it's it's very it's not sensationalistic. It's very I mean if you were to read it you'd be like this person has autism. If you were to read especially this thing I just put up which I maxed out the length. It's this very deep dive into this one guy and the entire evolution of the American mafia. And I mean if you were to read it it's this never ending scrolling article about I mean you would you would read it and be like this person's autistic. That's all there is to it. This is, an, this is an autistic guy who's obsessed with the mafia. <laughs> but uh, hopefully it reads well. But I, I just have to warn you, it's like it, it's not going to be like – there's nothing in there that's, that's like a car pulled up to the street corner. The nose of a Tommy gun pointed out the window. Big Joe stepped out onto the stoop of the social club with a cigar clenched between his teeth. A round of gunfire broke the morning air. Women and children walking their kids to school screamed. A police siren screamed while the tires squealed. You know, it's like you're not going to read anything like that. Instead, it reads like, so-and-so was born in this village. These guys were born in that village, too. It turns out that all of the early mafia organizations were formed based on village relationships and how those villages fit into this network. And here's an example of why this is true. Here's an example of why this might have happened. Here's an example of why this guy might have joined this organization. Here's why he might have moved from New York to San Francisco. That's pretty much (laughs) a caricature of of it. So 
but but you know it is something I'm passionate about. So if you're at all interested, check it out. But yeah, I just got back from the grocery store. Obviously, I mean I haven't unpacked anything yet, and I haven't gone for a bit. I've been between grocery store visits, and uh, you know it's. I, I, Grocery store visits are obviously where I, it's like kind of how my brain recalibrates. Like you walk, especially if you go to the grocery store at night, which I've started doing a lot. It's like you go in, it's very bright. I'm always very interested. It's, this is a weird thing. Maybe it's just a weird thing about me, but it's something that I do. I'm always very interested in knowing who's in there. Not because I, because I never see people I know. You know, even though Olympia is a small town, I don't know what it is, but I go to a, a few grocery stores, you know, I don't, I go to a variety of stores and I pretty much never see anybody I know, but I'm still very curious. Like, I'm not curious if I'm going to see somebody I know. I'm just like, who's in here? What kind of people are in the grocery store tonight? You know, that's kind of my approach. And so like, I kind of like hold my breath, like not in a nervous way, but just kind of like. I'm very, I don't know what it is about it, but it's like, who's at the hunting ground tonight? And there was nothing too eventful tonight. It was actually, you know, tonight was one of the least eventful grocery store visits I've had. In, in a long time, at least. You know, I, I talked here a few weeks ago about how there was a lady, a transient lady having a seizure outside the other day or the other week. And how I had to call the cops and... She ended up like getting back on her feet and then I ran into her into the store. I ran into her in the store and she complimented my Thor's hammer necklace. Like she had no idea. Like she was out, she was not conscious when I called the police. So she had no idea or called 911. She had no idea that I was the guy who called the aid car for her. But you know, so the grocery store can be very eventful for me and tonight it wasn't very eventful, but it is this weird recalibration this weird observation of people. It's kind of how I, it's like when you lick your finger and stick it in the air to, to find out which way the wind is blowing. That's kind of what the grocery store is for me. And, and it's not like I go into the grocery store and be like, I'm a scientist and I'm gonna, I'm gonna measure how everything, how the mood of everything is. You know, I, it's just, I naturally am just like, I pick up on the feeling in the grocery store. The feeling in the grocery store both like the vibe, like, cause you can, I mean, a great example is just like the prices of things. You know, it, there's a lot of rumors of like massive inflation and we've already seen signs of it. And so it's like, you can gauge that. Like I was talking months ago, how I also use the price of gas. You know, I use the price of gas and what's going on in grocery stores to kind of measure my environment. And, Anyway, I don't have much more to say about that, but I was thinking about the idea of like, I truly am one of those people who, I, 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 I absolutely am one of those people who's like, I'm not spirit, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I, I really am that, and I shouldn't really try to deny it. I shouldn't try to distance myself from that, even though it's embarrassing in some way. And I was thinking about how, you know, both those things really bother people, like, it really bothers religious people or not religious people equally when you say like, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious or I, I kind of believe this, but I'm not going to commit to your orthodoxy. You know, see, that seems to bother people who are very religious and it also seems to bother people who are atheists. They both seem equally disturbed when you're spiritual but not religious because atheists are dismissive of everything spiritual. 
Everything is just neurons firing in the brain. Oh, meditation? You mean when the neurons in your brain become measurably different when we hook nodes up to your brain? It's like you're missing the bigger picture. Yeah, you can measure it that way. Do you ever think about like why the neurons in a monk's brain change when they hook him up to a machine? It's funny how it's like, oh no, it's just it's just the neurons in his brain changing. It's like, do you ever think about like that that's part of something larger than just like, yeah, there's a measurable process taking place. That's interesting. It's interesting that you can scientifically measure a change in brain waves when somebody is meditating. They've done tests on this. But to think that that's what's happening is funny to me. Like the idea that because the brain waves change, that's the entire point of it. Or that's that's the ex, that's the explanation. I don't know, but it's just funny that like atheists tend to be very dismissive of anybody who says they're spiritual, but then devoutly religious people are often like, "Why don't you just commit?" And I've even experienced that with Buddhists. Like I went to this I went to this meeting of this Buddhist group a couple of years ago, and even though they were nice, I could tell they didn't really like the fact that I, I wasn't going to commit to it because they were, they were trying to recruit me plain and simple. I could tell that even though they were this nice, kind hearted Buddhist group, I could tell there was an element of conversion going on and I could just tell that it, it, they didn't entirely like that. I wasn't going to go along with it. And so you experience that with everybody. I mean, I experienced it a lot with Christians, like because I kind of had to learn my lesson talking about Christianity with born again Christians because I believe in God, you know, and I get more comfortable just saying that with time. But I believe in God, and I read the Bible every night. You know, I I truly take in a lot of what's in there. Not, all, and I mean, I gloss over a lot of it too. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, I imagine like if you read my my latest mafia article, it's probably going to be like reading the most boring parts of the Old Testament. And, you know, honestly, it's not entirely different beyond the spiritual side, beyond the the divine aspects. It's like when it actually gets into the way that I'm talking about these people, it might as well just be the book of the book of mafia, book of mafia, but uh. You know, you do, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a lesson I've learned with born-again Christians where it's like I realized that they don't entirely, like, like, and this isn't true for all of them, of course, but there's just a certain sort of person who is devoutly religious and they're just as bothered by you being spiritual and not religious, which I'm very self-aware in saying because that's made fun of so much. But the people who make fun of that, the people who mock you for, for the cliche of being spiritual and not religious, they're upset that you're not on their team. It's tribal. They don't actually care about what you believe or don't believe. They're bothered by the fact that you're not on their team. And we see that politically, where just like being spiritually independent seems to bother atheists and devoutly religious people equally, being politically independent bothers Democrats and Republicans equally. And those, th those two things are correlated for me. You know, I think the same thing that makes me politically independent, not to be confused with apolitical. You know, I'm not apolitical. I think that should be obvious by the last few months of me just going off about whatever, whatever bullshit is bothering me in the world. But, you know, I'm not apolitical, I'm, I, but I am politically independent. And that seems to bother just about everybody. Not that I feel, you know, like I'm uh, persecuted for it, 
but just there's this dismissiveness and I experience it with people I agree with on the right and I experience it with the left. There's this tendency to be like, why don't you just commit? And it's like, my commitment is my business. And I do commit. Spiritually, I commit. I would say I'm very committed spiritually. I don't, when I say I'm spiritual but not religious, I mean, look at what I do. You know, I practice meditation. I read religious books. It's a constant part of my structure. That sounds fairly religious, but I'm not aligned with a particular religion. Some more than others, but still, I'm not aligned with any one religion. And uh, what's funny about that, too, though, is if you tell a born-again Christian you're a Christian, they're not necessarily that interested in what you believe or what you practice. They're just happy you said it. Whereas if you can, if you don't say those words, if you don't say, yes, I'm a born-again Christian like you, there's going to be this dissonance in your uh, communication. And it's just funny to me that that manifests politically too, where if you're politically independent, people seem to have the same exact feeling. And it is that tribal aspect, I'm guessing, where it's like, oh, you're not committing to my team. Therefore, you might be my enemy. Or at the very least, I don't want to support you. I don't want to, I don't, I can't be enthusiastic about you if you're not going to be on my team. And the way I would put it is that those things are definitely correlated. I do think it's the same thing inside of me that makes me spiritually independent, that also makes me politically independent. But I would put it this way. I believe my political independence comes from my spiritual independence, but my spiritual independence does not come from politics because that's more essential. The spirit is more essential. So, of course, the spirit would influence my politics. But the politics aren't going to influence my spirit. And we can see where we live in a world where people are, their spirits are corrupted by politics. And I think that's the core difference between being independent and not being independent is that by giving up your independence, I think that external and superficial illusory elements corrupt you. And so for me, it's important to remember that spiritual independence is what creates my political independence, but not the reverse. It's not a two-way street. And you know, I sometimes feel like maybe I should just commit to something. Maybe I should just call myself this. But anytime I actually think about it, I'm like, no, that's not, that's not right. That's, that's other people pressuring me. That's convenience and that's pressure. And you should never be pressured into convenience. But you do reach a point where, like I've talked before, where for years, like, I wouldn't call myself an artist. I wouldn't call myself an artist. You know, I wouldn't call myself an artist because because people, they talk about that in the same way they do people who say they're spiritually but not religious. These things are seen as pretentious, and they are. You know, they are. But you realize so much of who we are, or who so much of what we try to express in the world is pretentious. A lot of self-expression by its very nature is pretentious, even if it doesn't sound like it. But calling yourself an artist does come across very pretentious, but we've reached a point where it's not as pretentious anymore. People, like, it's become completely normal to see somebody who calls themselves an artist as pretentious. So now it's actually not pretentious to call yourself that because you know that people will see you as pretentious, if that makes any sense. There's a back and forth to these things.
But it's kind of the same where like, I don't go around being like, I'm an artist, I'm an artist, but guess what? What do I do? What is? What are all these things I draw? What are all these things that I participate in, have participated in? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously an artist, but nothing more. I create art and that's all there is to it. I think where the idea gets pretentious is the idea that like, well, what is art? What, and then people t- tend to also have a huge issue with people who call themselves artists, but they do. It's like performance. It's not something material. Or the or it's like, oh, I'll, this guy, he just makes blank. He just takes a blank canvas and he calls it art. People seem to be very upset about artists who they feel are taking advantage of them. So that's a part of it, too. But, you know, getting comfortable with just calling yourself something if you have to is kind of what I'm getting at, where there was a point in my life where I never, ever would have called myself an artist. Never, ever. And then I reached a point where I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of what I am. I'm not going to go around saying it, but it's, it's, it's convenient. It's like just saying I believe in God. I tried to find so many other ways to say that that I was like, I'm, I'm using so much energy trying to find another way of saying I believe in God so that somebody doesn't prejudge that idea, I just reached a point where I don't, I don't give a fuck. Why should I give a fuck about something that is a placeholder word that other people are going to judge? But I, can't, I just can't bring myself to do that politically, and I can't bring myself to do it spiritually. Because I've thought, like, maybe I should just call myself a Buddhist for convenience. And I just come back to the fact that, no, I'm not a Buddhist. It doesn't come from not wanting to be one. It comes from the fact that I don't feel like one. But I do think there is this correlation, at least for me, between spiritual independence and political independence. And I think it's... I think I'm dropping protein bars. Um, But I, I do believe there... I do believe a certain amount of spiritual independence makes you independent in other ways. But you can't get the order mixed up. You can't believe, that oh, because I'm politically independent, that's what informs my spiritual, my spiritual presence, or my, my, my spiritual um, alignment, whatever. And you can't go about things that way. And I see things in those terms too. Like I see politics in a spiritual context. Like when I take a big picture look at what plays out in the back and forth and up and down of politics, I see a spiritual conflict at its core. I don't think there's any other way to look at it. And it's not a coincidence that so much of the Old Testament is dedicated to that. It's talking about wars, kings, battles, conflicts, people fighting. A lot of it's political, a lot of it's militaristic. But it's using that to illustrate a greater spiritual conflict. And so I think it makes sense that you can look at the politics around you, what's going on today, and view them in a spiritual context, which is why people who are on a certain team see the other team as evil and they see themselves as inherently good. Because what is the right side of history? Fortunately, I haven't heard that as much lately. I think it burned itself out. But what is the right side of history? It's a way of saying I'm going to heaven. By saying, I'm on the right side of history, it means that long after you're dead, you'll be in a good place. Because you know that, like, history books aren't going to remember you. You're not even a footnote. 
So it's not that you'll be on the right side of history books. It's that you think your soul basically is going to be in the right place when it's all said and done. So you can see where that the, the, the way people view these things is spiritual. But I, I just I try not to make the mistake of, of thinking that that's anything more than just something floating on the surface. You know, politics are just floating on the surface of something far deeper, which is why you can put it in a spiritual context. Not even just put it in a spiritual context. It's why it feels like it's in a spiritual context to begin with, because it is. And so, yeah, I do believe that my spirituality informs my politics, but not the opposite, not the reverse. And you can't allow that to happen. You can't allow your politics to influence your spirit. Your spirit should always influence your politics. That's why I go to the grocery store, so I can think about these things, come home, talk while I unpack my groceries. That's why I go to the grocery store. children